Uh, For the past several months, we've been working our way through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We call that 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul sharing his heart uh, for the believers here that make up the church in the city of Corinth. His his heart for Jesus, um, his heart for them, his heart for the, the gospel ministry that God has entrusted to them. It's a very emotional letter, and because of that, We've titled it our Heart of Discipleship series. In other words, it's the heart, the, the heart of Paul is the heart of Jesus. Therefore, it's the heart that we should have as we're striving to follow Jesus faithfully and as we're striving to help other people faithfully follow Jesus, which is our responsibility. In our most recent section, Paul's been writing about the reality of suffering. That's a reality that we all know too well. In this broken world, And in these broken bodies, we understand that suffering is a part of our experience. You you turn on the news and you immediately begin to hear story after story of suffering because it's a war, a, a genocide. There's a drought in one area of the world and there's flooding in another area of the world. People are being devastated and inundated in many different ways. We understand suffering's happening around us. We suffer in these bodies as well. And, and I think that you know, we've been praying for, for weeks now uh, for Regina Barfield. That's, that's Melanie and Jim and Daniel's sister. And, and she's just been suffering. Her body is struggling. Just this last Sunday night, a uh, second grader, a, a young girl who was supposed to start second grade, Macy Sendrosky, here in Republic, passed from this life to the next after a three-year battle with cancer. It's devastating, obviously, her family and, and even the teachers and administrators who had been with her on that journey through the years. These bodies are broken. And because they're broken, we experience suffering on so many levels. So amidst all of the brokenness and the pain, the grief, the devastation, where's the hope? Where is our hope? And our, our hope comes in, in one word. It's where we've sang about multiple times this morning. Resurrection. Resurrection is our only true hope. We, we need a new world. We need new bodies. This is what Christians believe. This is what those who follow Christ believe. We believe in a resurrection. That is where our hope is set. Our expectation is that resurrection is coming. As Paul wrote now in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-5, through 5, which we covered a couple weeks ago, Paul says, we know this to be true. We know that the resurrection is assuredly a thing. And he goes on to say that there's a day coming when, when life will swallow up death. Isn't that the reverse of how we often think about experience the world around us that death is what swallows up life but Paul reverses it and says no no life will swallow up death finally in the resurrection and so that context leads us into verses 6 through 10 where Paul begins by claiming because of this we're we're of good courage We are of good courage, or or because of this hope, the hope of the resurrection, we're confident, we're we're bold, we're courageous, courageous even through the grief, the pain, the struggle, the devastation. We have a confidence and a courage to continue on in faithfulness. So if you would, 
I'm going to read for us 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. If you need a pew Bible, it's page 908 in the pew Bible. I'd like you to be able to follow along 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. I'm going to read that, then I'm going to pray. And then I want to take some time to just hopefully help us understand and unpack a little bit of what we find in these verses so that we can leave here today understanding the truth of God's word better and encouraged in it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim, our objective, to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Father, we thank you for your word. I would not have anything else to say up here were it not for your word today. And I don't want to get in the way of what you want to accomplish. And so I pray that you'll help me to just simply and clearly communicate the truth of Scripture. Spirit, we pray that you would help us to understand, you would help us to apply, convict where conviction needs to be, encourage and, and, and help us where that help is needed and encouragement is needed. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. I want to begin by talking to you about Paul's desire to be home. I'm a homebody. That is a person who likes to be home. I made that very clear a couple of weeks ago uh, that I would much rather be at home than camping in a tent. That was Paul's section, right? Because there's so much more comfort in my bed than a sleeping bag on the ground. And there's so much more comfort in having air conditioning and heating when those things are needed and not having to depend upon nature. Uh, but even if you were to, to throw out a list of activities, adventures, places to go, people to see, and you were to put that in front of me, probably eight out of 10 of those I would turn down just to be home uh, because I like to be home. Home is comfortable. Uh, home is uh, relaxing most of the time. I do have three teenage boys, and so sometimes it can get a little cantankerous and loud, uh, but I can usually distance myself. Uh, home, is, home is home. How many other homebodies uh, do we have out there? People who just say, I, I kind of just like being at home. Yeah, probably about, about half of us. Uh, today, one of our elders, Dustin Alcorn, he's, he's traveling. He's having to go out east for work, and uh, so he's going to be away from us today. He's going to be away from his family. He's going to be away from his home. I guarantee you, and you could, you could pull his family up here. He would rather be here than there. A couple weeks from now, I've got to travel up north for a conference, and uh, I'm going to be there. I love the people there in uh, Bible Church, but Lakeside Bible Church in Mobridge, South Dakota. But I would rather be here. Dorothy said it best. There's no place like home. As far as I'm concerned, I would rather be there. And so, so what is Paul talking about when he's using these metaphors then? Being home, being away. Paul's homesick. 
That's where he's at right now. He's, he's homesick. He's sick for home. In these verses, it's clear that he's equating being in this, these broken and these unresurrected bodies as being away. I'm away. I'm on a trip right now. That This is contrasted with being fully resurrected and, and in the presence of Jesus as being home. Notice what he writes. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. And then in verse 8, he turns that around and says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Because this is the longing of Paul. Paul wants to be with Jesus. He wants to be in the presence of Jesus, face to face with Jesus. Him saying that doesn't negate the, the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit because we do, as, as followers of Jesus, we, we possess the Holy Spirit and He works through us and encourages us and helps us as we navigate through this life. We see that even in 2 Corinthians 5.5 as it leads into this text. But what Paul envisions here is the restoration of what once was in the Garden of Eden. Before sin came into the picture, Adam and Eve, they walked with God. They were face to face with God. They were free from sin. They were, they were free from pain. They were free from burden. They were free from grief. They were free from fear. And that's what Paul longs for, to be, to be home for him. This is home for, for us as followers of Jesus, to be in the presence of our Savior. Full restoration of what sin has destroyed. Let me give a couple of thoughts on this. Number one, we should long to be with Jesus. Just like Paul. As if we're followers of Jesus, we should long to be with him. And as we've discussed over the past few weeks leading up to this in these texts, our longings are, are off so often of the time. Our desires are misplaced so often of the time. They're too weak. And, and I've alluded a few times to this particular quote by C.S. Lewis from his book, The Weight of Glory. And so I thought today I would give it in full. It is in your bulletin if you would like to just follow along and read. But it says this. C.S. Lewis writes, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, that hits us all right between the eyes. Because here's what happens in this life. We don't long for Jesus as we should because we're so preoccupied with other longings. There's other things that we want more than Jesus. There's other things that we think will satisfy and we try it for a while and it doesn't fulfill us and so we try another thing and we're constantly on the search for something that is big enough and something that is significant enough to fulfill us and to satisfy us and that thing is there all the time. It's Jesus. And we try all the other things, the temporary things of the world. Lewis says the drink, the sex, the ambition. We must search the scriptures to understand that we are called to see and to savor the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the only thing big enough to truly satisfy. 
early on in our, our relationship, me and Faith, um, she's a coffee drinker and I'm not. And uh, I, I believe, and my memory may, may be skewed here, but I could put a cup of Folgers or Maxwell House in front of her early in our marriage and she would drink it and probably not say a word about it. But somewhere along the way, I made the mistake of saying, hey, let's stop in at this Starbucks place or let's go to this Panera place. And, and I started putting $7 coffee in her hand and then $9 coffee in her hand. And, and, and she, she's now what you call a coffee snob. And so she won't drink Folgers. She won't drink Maxwell House. She has to have the good stuff, right? The good stuff. And you, you coffee drinkers, you get it. Most of you, you know the difference between the good stuff and the, the stuff that's there at work usually or somewhere where you're at. The good stuff. Guys, Jesus is the good stuff. Don't settle for the the lesser stuff. Don't set your aim for things that are so weak and frail. Jesus is the good stuff we should desire and we should savor. Go for him. The second point I want to make as we think through these first verses. We come back to this truth again. It's a truth that is so important for us to understand. Death is what makes this journey home a reality. Death is what makes it a reality. Therefore, death is no longer our great enemy. Understand that. Jesus took the sting of death away. It's not the enemy anymore. It is now the doorway that takes us into the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not something that we're to fear. It's not something that we're to be resistant of. When your time comes, welcome it. Embrace it. Because it's going to take you home. You get to go home third point we walk by faith not by sight that's verse seven some of you may be thinking even as i'm up here talking about these things that sounds crazy <laughs> you're crazy and people have been saying that for a long time ever since paul was was preaching this stuff in the first century and he'd go into these cities and he would talk about the crucified christ and then he would come to the resurrection people would say paul you're nuts people don't rise from the dead that's not true that's not the way it works it is a little bit crazy. But we have to ask the question, what is faith? If we're to walk by it, what is faith? You know, there's a modern and really a wrong thinking concept about what faith is, that it's just some blind leap into the dark. I think of that scene in, of Indiana Jones and the, uh, the, 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 uh, the last one, the last crusade where, where he's in that big temple and he has to go through the different tests and he comes to, I think, the last one and there's a, there's a giant cavern in front of him and he's got to take the leap of faith. And there's a door on that side and he's in the doorway on this side. Some of you are like, I've never seen the movie. I can't believe that you haven't seen that movie. But, and he, he just simply steps out and there's a magical beam that appears, Right? That's, that's what we think of when we think of faith, but that's not the true reality of faith. Biblical faith means to trust. It is to step not into the darkness, but out of the darkness into the light. It's to step into the reality of what truly is and who God is and, and who we are and, and, and what this life is about and all that He has revealed to us in creation and through His Word. When you go to Hebrews chapter 11, which is a chapter all about faith. We read that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the, the conviction or the evidence 
of the things that are not seen. We understand it to be trusting God in obedience. I know his character. I know what he asks me to do. I believe in him, therefore I will follow him in obedience. I may not have all of the answers, but I don't have to have all of the answers. I know enough of him to take this first step of obedience, to take the next step of obedience, to put my faith in him. That's what Abraham did. Hebrews, it goes on to say, by faith, Abraham, he, he obeyed. He was called to leave his country and go to a new place, and that's exactly what he did. It, it goes on to talk of Moses and plenty of other people. Today, everybody in this room is putting their faith, their belief, their trust in something. We're moving forward day by day, step after step, trusting in something. Some of you are trusting that once this life is over, that's it, game over. The screen goes black and it's all done. I invite you along with Paul to consider the biblical message, consider the biblical storyline. So you might understand that there's a, there's a significant truth to what God reveals to us in the scriptures. And that, that's this, that he created. He created all of this. All of this that we see God created in holiness and in perfection. And the, the crown of his beautiful creation was that he created man and woman in his own image. In other words, man and woman were set in creation to image God, to be responsible for that creation. But what happened? Sin came into the picture. Adam and Eve at a point of temptation by the serpent began to believe that, that God was not good that God was somehow holding out on them and that there was more to be had. And so they sinned, they disobeyed God, they acted out of a disfaith rather than a faith. And as a result now, we are stuck in this cycle of sin and the consequences of sin. We all feel that in our own lives. Maybe every day, every week as we move through the years, we're, we, we feel that cycle of sin and the consequences of sin and the, the frustrations of life. And we see even in the pages of Scripture, even as early as Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve fell, God promises that, that He's going to send somebody to break that cycle He's going to send somebody to do what Adam and Eve could not do. And, and so as we move through the pages of Scripture, we're looking for that someone, that hero, who's going to accomplish this amazing thing. And Abraham comes on the scene and we think, yes, it's going to be Abraham. No, it's not going to be Abraham. Moses, not Moses. And person after person comes into play as you move through the pages of Scripture. We pause for a long moment on David because we think David is the guy who's going to get it done. But what happens? David crashes and burns like them all. Until Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus is different. He's not just a man. He is God. And Jesus does what none of those in the past and none of us in the present and none in the future could ever do. He lives a life of perfection before the Father. He walks in complete obedience to the Father. He fulfills the law to every jot and to every tittle before the Father. And what do they do to him? They kill him. But even that is no accident. 
It's part of the storyline of the Bible. Because what we begin to understand is that what Jesus is doing there on the cross is not just dying because people don't like him. He's on the cross and he's there bearing the sins of humanity. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's he doing? He's taking the sins of humanity on himself and taking the punishment and the wrath that mankind deserves. So what Jesus accomplishes is this. He lives the life that none of us could live. And he dies the death that none of us want to die, taking hell upon himself. And he says this to us here today, I will give you my righteousness and I will take your sin. This is what he accomplishes in his life, death, and resurrection. This is the story of the Bible. This is my story. This is hopefully your story. As we consider what God has done for us personally, I, I found nothing more compelling that fits the reality of life than this word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It makes sense out of this broken world of suffering and it gives hope to a broken and suffering world. And today I want to invite you to see and to savor the glory of Jesus so that you can leave here today in faith longing to be with him just as Paul is longing to be with him. Leaving with that hope. Faith in him, not a blind leap. Friends, the evidence is all around us. All around us that the gospel is true and the gospel is working. Beautiful truth. There's a couple more verses we need to cover. Paul's desire to please Jesus. See, the reality is Paul isn't in charge of whether he's here on the earth, away or home in the presence of Jesus. He leaves that up to God. When God is done with him here, he will be done here. We leave that up to God. We don't take that into our own hands. And Paul is the same. His attention isn't on making plans to stay, making plans to go. His focus is whether I'm away, that is here on the earth or at home, that is in the presence of Jesus. My aim, my focus, the, the directives of my life is to please him. To do everything I can to please him. To live a life acceptable to Christ. And if you miss that, it's verse 9. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, he says, to please him. First of all, it is necessary that we understand that Paul is not talking about working his way up a spiritual ladder to Jesus. This isn't about his works, his attaining the presence of Jesus. It's not about claiming that he can earn salvation in his letter to the Ephesians, and I'll have this verse on the screen. He's very clear. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest man could boast in it. Right? It's not about earning our way. So, so what is it about? Salvation is a gift of grace. It is the work of Christ. It's His life, His death, His resurrection, His intercession, His return, His eternal reign. It's all about Him. And so what then is Paul getting at in verse 9? Here's what he's saying. Because of this gracious gift that's been given to me. 
Because Christ has given his life. Because of his new life. Because of all of these promises, I'm gonna make it my aim to live a life that's pleasing to him. Based upon all that he's done for me. Paul recounts that motivation in, in the first letter that he writes to the Corinthians. There's a lot of backstory that we have to pull in in this second letter because it's groundwork that he's already laid. But in chapter 15, which is all about the resurrection, he begins by talking about how when he went to Corinth, he delivered to them the gospel of Jesus. That is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes in to talk about the evidence and those who saw Jesus. And I'm going to pick up, I believe, in verse 6 where he says, Then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers uh, at one time. Most of them were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, He appeared to me. I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But notice what he writes next. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, what did Paul do because of this grace? I worked harder than any of them. I got to work. I made it my aim to please him. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Paul opened himself up to the grace of God and worked harder. So let me ask you this question. How how do we live a life that's pleasing to Jesus? What does it look like? What does it mean to live a life that's pleasing to God? Well, there's a great story at the end of Matthew chapter three. It's the baptism of Jesus. And so Jesus is going into the water and you remember that the spirit is descending like a dove and so you have the son, the spirit, and then the father speaks. You have this great Trinitarian moment that's happening. Do you remember what the Father says in that moment? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What does a life that's pleasing to God look like? In summation, it's living as Jesus lived. It's loving people the way Jesus loved people. It's forgiving people the way Jesus forgives people. It's teaching other people the way Jesus taught. It's prioritizing the things that Jesus prioritized. So how are we doing here? Living a life, aiming to please God is living a life like Jesus lived. And if that gracious provision of salvation isn't enough reason for us to make it our aim to live a life that's pleasing, then maybe the motivation of verse 10 will help. Notice what it says, our last verse. For we must all appear before the, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Judgment is coming for every believer. This verse is not written for those who are not believers. That's another judgment. The great white throne of judgment. But this judgment seat of Christ is for every Jesus follower. And I'll say it this way. Every Jesus follower will stand before the one that they follow. 
we will one day stand before him. The word here translated judgment is, is the word bema. And it means just quite literally a step. It's, it's a step. But, but in the Roman world, it became known as the place of a judicial bench. And so it was where the judges would sit. And so, so Jesus stood before the Bema of Pilate. And interestingly enough, Paul, in his first visit to Corinth, he stood before the Bema of Gallio. They, they were accusing him of all sorts of things. And, and so there's an intimate connection that they would have with the idea of the Bema and the judgment. But this isn't the judgment that most of us imagine. Growing up, I terrifyingly envisioned a giant movie screen, <laughs> drive-in style, and everybody's eating popcorn and watching the movie of my life unfold, all my sins, every bad thing that I had done, and you know my thoughts probably like subtitled across the bottom. And that, that would terrify me to think, man, that's, that's not gonna be good. People are going to be throwing up their popcorn. It's not going to be pleasant for anybody. But friend, the gospel teaches that on the cross, Jesus took those sins upon himself as if they were his own. He became sin. We'll see that in one of my favorite verses that's coming in a few weeks, 521. He was judged for our sin. And that sin was removed as far as the east is from the west never to be thrown in my face again because Christ took the punishment. And so this bema of Christ is where, and it says it clearly in the text, we will receive what is due. It's a time of reward. As if being home with Jesus isn't reward enough, we're promised that, that we will be recognized and rewarded for the efforts that we put into the kingdom work. The faithfulness that we showed in the face of trials and the way in which we lived our lives. Again, Paul is building on a previous set of instructions that he gives in 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to throw another set of verses on the screen for you. I want you to see as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3 this judgment. He says, if anyone builds on the foundation, that is the foundation of our salvation with gold, with silver, and precious stones or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. It will be revealed for the day will disclose it. What day? Notice it's capitals. That judgment day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So there are things that we do in this life that are of eternal consequence. Gold, silver, precious stones. And there are other things that we do in this life that are of temporary consequence. Wood, hay, stubble. And at the Bema, those things will be tried by fire, and what remains will be the reward. I don't know if we can experience regret and remorse in heaven. I don't know if that's possible with resurrection and all that we'll experience, but I can tell you in light of this passage and passages like this, I experience it now. 
time and money that I waste on selfish pursuits. Conversations that I avoid because it's going to be uncomfortable for me. Forgiveness that I never grant to others because I want to be bitter. Sacrifices that I don't make because, well, who wants to sacrifice? Hard kingdom work that I avoid because I'm lazy. Prayers I never pray because I've got better things to do than sit around and pray. Life in the body of Christ, that is the church, never experienced. That is, using my gifts to benefit others and them using their gifts to benefit me, me encouraging others and them encouraging me and living that beautiful partnership in the gospel that I never experienced because pride told me I, I didn't need anyone else. You can just do this yourself. We started this month talking about that ticking clock that's running in the background of every life. We're instructed in scriptures to focus our time, our attention, our energy, our resources on the things that are eternal. That's the souls of men. That's your soul and that's the souls of all of those in the world. Those are the things that are eternal. The rest, it burns. So I've got a couple questions I want to ask as we conclude First, is Jesus your home? Do you know Him? Do you long for Him? Like Paul longs for Him. He wants to be with Him. Today is the day to make Him your home if He is not. In, invite, I invite you right now, we're going to have a moment of prayer in just a moment, to pray a prayer of surrender. And say, geez, I've tried all of these other things and none of them are satisfying me. None of it's working. None of it's bringing me joy. None of it's filling me with hope. It's because your longings are too weak. There's something more. You're playing with the mud when Jesus says, come enjoy the beach. Today I invite you to pray a prayer of confession. Confessing your need for him, confessing your need for salvation. Because you can't work your way to God. Second question. For those of you who would say, Jesus is my home, is pleasing him your aim then? What's your aim in life? What's your objective? What are you pursuing after? Either, either we are pursuing and aiming to please Christ or we are pursuing and aiming to please us. The old adage is there's just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. It's what we're left with in the end. What of eternal value will you have when you stand before our Savior Jesus Christ? I fear for myself, I fear for many of us, there will be nothing but a, 
a few nuggets of gold, a precious stone or two, and then mounds and mounds of ashes. Today is a day to commit. Today is a day to say, I want to make it my aim to please him because of what he's done for me, the gracious gift of salvation, and I want to make it my aim to please him because he's even gracious enough to reward me for the ways in which I faithfully served him. I'm going to ask you now, if you would, to, 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 to bow your heads with me. This is our time of response. Chuck and Tina and Karen are, are right up here in the front. They're ready to talk with, to listen to you, to encourage you to pray with anybody who is in need today. If you know that you need to make Jesus your home, they're, they're ready to talk with you and help you in our prayer room uh, just to my right. Or if you're here today and you know my aim is off, my, my, my goal, they're, they're, I'm, I'm trying to do things for me and not for Jesus, and that's a prayer of commitment you need to make and you need encouragement. I encourage you, come forward. You're welcome to pray with them. But this is a time for all of us to be responsive. It's time for me to be quiet and let the Spirit of God convict and encourage as the Spirit of God and only the Spirit of God can do. And so I'm going to be quiet and in the quiet, this is your opportunity to be responsive. If you need to pray with somebody, you need to talk with somebody, you can make your way right up here to my right and they will be more than happy to help you think through these things. Let's pray. Father, as has already been prayed and recognized Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that when we quit and when we give up and when we... It's not even about quitting and giving up. When we turn away from you, when we rebel against you, you do not stop pursuing us. Your plan to redeem and to resurrect and to restore just continues to trudge along through the annals of history to the present where we sit today and will continue into the future until the glorious return of our King of Kings. What a joy it is to be a part of that. God, I pray that you will realign our thinking today, that we would long for Jesus more than we long for the temporary things of this world. That he would be our great desire. And that we would work to that end, that we would work to, to please Jesus, making it our aim, making it our objective. Every day when we wake up, to please Jesus as husbands and wives, to please Jesus as parents and kids, to please Jesus as employees and employers, to please Jesus as, as people driving in traffic. To please Jesus as we interact with our neighbors. To please Jesus as we entertain our own thoughts. God, help it to be our aim. Spirit, we pray that you would continue to work. 
you would continue to challenge us, that your word would continue its powerful work in us as we leave this place and move into this week. Help us to be doers of the word. In Jesus' name.